glad you're here today. If you're in Theater 9, good morning and special hello to you. If you're a guest with us today, I want to thank you for coming. And Lord willing, you've had several people greet you already, the greeters and just different folks. Maybe somebody you're sitting next to just looked over and I don't know you and so said hello to you. And uh, really that's because we want you to know the warmth and love of Jesus Christ today. And so hopefully you'll feel that sense that. One of the things we'd love to do is just be generous with you, give you a gift. But what we'd ask you to do is uh, make yourself known as a visitor. And the way you do that is not that you have to stand up right now and say hello to everyone. But what we'd love for you to do is if you'd fill out the connection card in your worship program. And uh, for the rest of us, you can look at your worship program, find out a bunch of information. It'll answer questions about the church on a regular basis. The back page has some events and activities, different things that are, that are going on you maybe want, want to be aware of. And then also on the inside, we'll say things like when our next Discovering Southbridge lunch is, when next steps are, if you're interested in membership. Uh, it'll say things about our community groups we desire for everybody was a part of our church on a regular basis to be involved in community group. What happens at community group is simply that you'll go further in the passage of scripture that we talk about this morning than we will today. And you'll talk personally with one another and you'll start living life, real life, one-on-one with one another and begin to live out the one-anothers of scripture. And so we want everybody to be doing that. And so if you're a guest, please take a moment, fill out that connection card. The rest of you can check out the worship program. And then also in Theater 9, I want to say uh, goodbye to our friend Dave Holt, our worship pastor, and has been for a little while now. If you've been here the last several weeks, um, you've heard that Dave and his family are going to be going to Wilmington, North Carolina, trying to reach that city for Jesus Christ. So we want to thank him for the ministry he's had here. Uh, he and his wife and their little one, Cam, and expect another one soon. So if you see him in the lobby today or after the service, or if you want to rush over from here to Theater 9 um, and say hello to him, um, and just thank you so much, Dave, for the ministry that you've had. We appreciate that. And then what we're going to do today is we're going to open up God's Word. We're going to be back in the Gospel of Luke, and we've been doing this series entitled Entrusted. And before we open up God's Word, let's just go before the throne of grace and ask God to, to speak to us. Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are God, that we're not, um, that we have a lot of tough questions we want to ask, but we're no one to darken your counsel, that you tell the ways where to stop, and that you have created us, and uh, we're created beings, and we cry out to you for your love and for your grace, and God, we're thankful that you give it so freely, that you've given it through your son, Jesus Christ, that you've uh, sent your son, that you are a giver, not a taker, that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, and you give us the opportunity to use our lives the way that they were designed to be used for your glory, and God, I pray that we would do just that. And I pray today, even as we open up your word, and maybe questions will come, and difficult questions will come, and, and we have things to bring before you, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, that you would show us how you are the God of compassion, that you're the God of comfort, who comforts us with all comfort, and God, will you please pour that out on us today? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm willing to bet that probably each person will hear these words, whether you're online, whether you're listening right here in Theater 14 or in Theater 9, that there are certain things you've been given in life that you would rather not receive. And maybe it's been a cold. You know, you got that guy that comes into your office and he thinks he's got like the best work ethic and he's been an example to you and then he sneezes on your phone <laughs> and then you and all your kids get sick. And so you're like, I don't, I don't want, you just quit being this, you just stay home. You know, you don't want what he's offering you. Or, or maybe one time you were driving, you know, you went 46 and a 45 and they got you. <laughs> yeah, right. But anyway, you were going, you know, whatever you were going and they pulled you over and the police officer gives you a ticket and you know it's his job to protect and serve the community. And you're probably thinking to yourself, I'm so grateful that he's protecting the community from me, right? No, you don't want that. He just gave you something you didn't want. Or maybe you've received a gift before. Maybe uh, somebody was really dumb and they gave you a vacuum cleaner for Christmas. Or, or maybe they, they gave you a gym membership that you didn't ask for. So you start to evaluate things. You know, why, why, what is this? Or somebody just walks up to your church, hey, you want some gum? <laughs> what you, there's some meaning behind these gifts. You don't want them, though. You may need them. You don't want them at that moment. We've all received gifts like that before. 
Have you ever been over someone's house and they're moving and they just start unloading stuff? Like they just start giving stuff. I've done that before. The other day I said, why in the world did I give away my backup propane tank? And I remembered I didn't want to move it. So I just handed it to the guy. The guy goes to our church. If you'd like to return that, Mark, that would be wonderful. Uh, but uh, we just start giving stuff away. I was over at a friend's house last weekend and his company was sending he and his wife and their kids to China. And they'd already packed up all their stuff, sent it overseas, and they had these like, kind of miscellaneous things that needed to fit in their suitcase. And, and what my friend realized, Dan was his name, so Dan realized that he could start giving me things and I would take them. And he gave me some great things. He gave me some speakers for my computer that were way better than any speaker. I never had a subwoofer for my computer before. And he gave me a subwoofer for my computer, and I was like, this is awesome. Then it clicked with his wife. He'll take stuff. And she just starts bringing stuff out. She brings out this thing of cheese balls. And I'm not talking like a bag of cheese balls. This is huge, ginormous, like plastic container. It says, do you think your daughters would like these cheese balls? <laughs> do you think the sky is blue? Of course they're going to want these cheese balls. You know, I take the cheese balls, gives me a Buzz Lightyear life jacket, comes out with a nightlight that's all frou-frou. We've got three girls about to have our fourth girl. Uh, give us a frou-frou light, nightlight. Like, who doesn't want that? It's got like these beads on it. It's all pink. And it's just like, yes, of course that goes with my house. Then Dan pulls out these toys. Parents, have you ever seen those toys you get with kids' meals? They're, they're like ridiculous. It's just the plastic stuff. It's the stuff that when you're walking through the house and the house isn't clean, you're like, ow, what did I just step on? It's that stuff. No one wants that stuff at their house. And so Dan brings the stuff on. He says, do you want these toys? We got them all from Chick-fil-A. And I look in, it's a bunch of plastic junk. I was like, no. We had a good enough for friendship. I said, I don't want that. I don't want what you're giving me. And then he says, no, you don't understand, Scott. You can redeem these for ice cream. And do you know if you go through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A and you take a kid's toy there from one of their Happy Meals, or you can hand it in, they'll give you ice cream. It's the gift that keeps giving. It's wonderful. Originally a gift I didn't want, but then I realized it could be redeemed. As we've been going through this series, we've been talking about how God is a giver and how he gives us different things. We've talked about things that, that many of us want to receive. We talk about how he gives us resources, financial resources. But he gives us those to see whether he can trust us with true riches, lives that have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week we had someone place their faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And so someone trusts Jesus, he's entrusting us with a changed life. And he does that, the true riches in 1611 of Luke chapter 16. And we talked about last week how, how we are entrusted with forgiveness. Who doesn't want forgiveness? Everyone wants forgiveness. We talked about a couple weeks ago how he entrusts us with the truth, transforms our hearts and transforms our lives. We don't always like the truth because it changes us, but we all want the truth. But today we're going to talk about a gift that many of us, probably most of us, don't want, but all of us have experienced, pain pain. Physical pain, emotional pain, pain from the past, pain that you may be currently going through. Pain is something that it's a reality of this place. This place is broken. It's messed up. Sometimes we experience pain in our lives because we make bad decisions and we suffer the consequences of our own bad decisions. But sometimes we experience pain just because this place is jacked up. And it's been jacked up since Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Remember the, the story of the fall? Our original parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They were living in a perfect environment, a perfect relationship with God. Then they sin, and this place gets cursed. And God says part of the curse is that there'll be pain. He says that there'll be the, the work. You'll work the ground, and it'll produce thorns and thistles and weeds, and there'll be the sweat of your brow. And it's not just in July in North Carolina, the sweat of your brow. That's the frustration with work. It's not just when you're farming. It's the economy. When the economy goes bad, it's just part of this broken place. It says to the woman, there'll be pain in childbirth. So ladies, that means there was a time when there was no pain in childbirth. Can you imagine that, those of you who've given birth? My wife's about to give birth in a little bit over a week. A week from tomorrow is the plan when we'll have our fourth baby, and she's already in pain. Do you realize how difficult this is on me? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Awkward moment. Loved it. Anyway, uh, there's pain in this world. There's physical pain, and sometimes it's real serious. Sometimes it's things like cancer or disease that starts to 
be overwhelming. And sometimes it's emotional pain because of something someone else did to you, abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and it's something that happens and you carry those scars and you carry that pain. And sometimes it's decisions that you've made and there's consequences that come with that. And sometimes it's guilt and it's shame and there's all this pain and it makes us long for a time and a place when there won't be that pain. And we read about that when Jesus, when God creates a new heaven, a new earth, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says he'll wipe all the tears and there'll be no crying, there'll be no pain. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. See, there'll be a new order of things, but right now we still live in the old order of things. The old order of things has passed away. And we long for that, but the problem for us is we still live in this place. And as long as we're in this place, there's still pain. And there's still tragedy. And there's still stuff that happens that seems unexplainable. Why would such bad things happen to children? Why would such bad things happen to people that are just standing there and they get hit by a car or something or a heart attack and they've got a family to raise? And why do these things happen? And there's this pain that comes with that and the emotional stuff and sometimes even anger and bitterness towards God. But even Jesus himself promised that in this world you will have trouble. It's John chapter 16, verse 33. You go to a funeral, what's the most popularly quoted psalm you'll hear? Although I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23. And it's true that God is our shepherd, we still go through the valley. And many of us, we've been entrusted with pain. And some of us, we think to ourselves, this is something I've been entrusted with because it's just part of this place. Why have I been entrusted with so much? If you wonder that, then you have no problem identifying with the guys in Luke chapter 17. That's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bible, Luke chapter 17. We'll start reading in verse 11. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. And what we've been talking about has been since uh, Luke chapter 16 of this Entrusted series, where Jesus started speaking to his disciples, his followers, about money. And he talked about how they've been given money, but really money is a test to see whether they can be entrusted with true riches. And then not only are we given money and are we given people, but we're also given the truth. It's supposed to first internally transform our hearts and transform our lives and impact the world around us. And then we've been entrusted with forgiveness, but not just so that we can have forgiveness. Everybody wants forgiveness, but we're also, as forgiven people, supposed to forgive people and we left off last week in verse 7. In verse 7 through 10, we didn't cover it last week, but it, it basically says that forgiven people forgive people in verses 1 through 6. And then verses 7 through 10, it talks about, and that's just what we do. There's no extra credit for that. That's just what it is to live out your Christianity. That's just what it is to live in a community of grace that you should be willing and desiring to forgive other people. And then Jesus transitions and begins to speak to these men that are experiencing incredible pain. As I know some here today are probably experiencing incredible pain. And maybe when you've been through pain, you've been through hurt, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whatever it is, maybe somebody's quoted this verse to you. God works all things together for good for those who love him. And you think to yourself, that is true and it's in the scriptures, but it doesn't seem right right now. How could this ever possibly be good? That's what we're going to talk about today. Luke chapter 17. If you have your Bible, start reading in verse 11. It says, now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. There were ten of them. A lot of times we see Jesus have these encounters with one person. There are ten guys here. And they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? In verse 19. Then he said to him, this one, this foreigner, rise and go, your faith has made you 
well. Here we have this passage of Scripture with these ten men that are experiencing incredible pain. And what we see is that God's redeeming the pain. He's using the pain. There's a purpose behind the pain. And the first thing he shows is that the pain reveals our dependence. See, pain always reveals our dependence. But there's a problem for us, specifically for us as Americans, is we like to be self-sufficient. We're self-made people. We're self-made men. We're self-made women. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We get it done. We work hard. We're the ones that put ourselves in the position. We're the ones that came up with a big idea. And not only that, we live in the home of the free, the land of the brave. We're this place where we're an independent country with a bunch of independent individuals that even live according to the Declaration of Independence. We've got this right, this unalienable rights to pursue life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so we start to believe that we're actually independent individuals until maybe something happens in your life. There's a circumstance. Like in my house, maybe I'll have a conversation with my wife and I'll say something like, maybe I'm running late, getting ready in the morning. I say, honey, will you make me a sandwich for my lunch? And she's doing something too. And so she says, well, you're a big boy. Make your own sandwich. To which I respond to her, but it tastes so much better when you make it. Which shows I'm dependent or lazy. One of the two. It's, it's something. It shows something about me. Or when my car breaks down. I don't know how to fix my car. I'm dependent on another person. I'm dependent on a mechanic. Someone to know what in the world's happening with fans and belts and all that stuff that's going on underneath the hood. I get in the car. I turn the key. I expect it to start. I know every once in a while I can put gas in it, oil change, but I'm expecting it to get me from point A to point B. Someday, maybe, we'll be able to just like teleport from one spot. Beat me up, Scotty. You know, one teleport from one spot to the next. I won't know how it works, but I'll use it, and that's how I, that's how I function with a car. And some of you, that's with a computer. Your computer goes bad, and you need like an IT guy. They love calling themselves geeks. It seems derogatory to me. But the really smart guys with the computers, uh, they can fix it. You depend upon them. And for your taxes, many of you have your own CPA, or you go to H&R Block, or one of these places, and you depend on those people to do these things. And when you start to evaluate your life, you start to realize we're dependent on other humans. If for nothing else, for companionship, you live in isolation, you'll go crazy. And so we start to think we're independent. We start to think we live these self-sufficient lives. We start to evaluate and we realize we're dependent on other people for all kinds of things. And we're dependent on food just to survive. And we're dependent upon water just to survive. And whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it doesn't matter. You're dependent upon God. For every breath you have, that one and that one, it's by God's grace that you're even alive. You're dependent upon Him. But we believe, we oftentimes believe that we're independent individuals living in an independent country, even following the Declaration of Independence, where we've got life and liberty, and then pain comes. And oftentimes what happens with pain is all of a sudden the pursuit of happiness doesn't seem like a reality to us. And what happens is pain reveals, it shows us something that's already true. It uncovers a truth that already exists, that we are dependent people. See, pain always reveals our dependence. And that's what you see with the men in this passage of Scripture. If you go back to verse 12, what you'll see are these, these men. And they're crying out to Jesus. But notice they're at a distance. They're probably about 50 yards away, maybe 150 feet away, depending on how the wind is blowing that day. They've got a, a certain distance between them and Jesus. And that doesn't seem normal. Because Jesus is so incredibly popular at this point in his ministry. Remember, he set his face towards Jerusalem. These are the final months of his life. That started in Luke chapter 9. And now he's going towards the cross. In the meantime, he's been doing these miracles. In fact, many scholars believe that between verse 11 and verse 10 in Luke chapter 17, that Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. That's in John chapter 11, if you want to read it on your own. That he just raised a dead person. If you read Luke chapter 5, he actually touched a leper. No one touches lepers. He touched a leper and healed the leper. 
He's healed blind eyes. He's fed thousands. He's done all kinds of miracles. And here are these men. They're not rushing to Jesus. That's weird because everyone else rushes to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you have a demon-possessed child. It doesn't matter if you have blind eyes. It doesn't matter if you can't speak. It doesn't matter if you're the woman who's unclean, ceremonially unclean. She's got an internal bleeding issue. She fights through the crowd to touch his robe just to touch him. And here are these guys. They, They stand at a distance. And you see why? Because they had leprosy. Leprosy was a disease where you were supposed to be at a distance. In fact, you're supposed to be in isolation from all people. And most of us, we've never maybe seen someone or met someone with leprosy, and it was very hard to diagnose. If you read the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus in chapter 13, you can see how they would diagnose it and how easily it would be to misdiagnose it. And so oftentimes, leprosy was diagnosed in the Bible wasn't even what we consider leprosy. It wasn't until the 19th century that it was diagnosed as Hansen's disease that we call leprosy. But people could have just psoriasis. They could have a skin disease, a rash, or some pussy sore that's on their body, and they get diagnosed with leprosy. And we don't know if all 10 of these men actually had it or some of them were misdiagnosed, but we know that they were all living as if they had the condemnation of this disease. And what would happen with leprosy is that you'd go show yourself to the priest, you know, the guy that represents God in your community, and he would examine you, and if it looked like you had a skin disease, then you were told to go live outside the camp for a period of time. Then you get to come back, and if you still had it after about a week you were excommunicated, rejected by the person who represents God to you. And it was really for the benefit of the whole community that they didn't get contaminated, but how do you feel as an individual? And if you see and you start to study what this disease looks like, it's terrible medical disease. It's this bacteria that can get into your system through just coughing or sneezing or or other people's body fluids. The guy comes into the office and he's sick. You didn't do anything wrong. You just got sick, and this guy gets sick. And so do these nine other guys. And what happens is it attacks your, your body. It attacks your skin. It starts to eat away at your skin. And I was reading about it this week. One person I read said that you start to get the swelling on your forehead and it can start to swell up. And many people don't even look human anymore. They look like lions. You can't even see their eyes and their face becomes totally swelled. And, and many people, they lose appendages. They lose limbs. They'll break bones. They don't even feel it. See, you'd look at someone and you would think if you saw them with all the swelling and, and all the disease, people will itch themselves to the point where they, they create a sore. And then that becomes infected, and they get gangrene, and they lose a limb, and they don't even feel it. Because that's the unique thing about leprosy, is it anesthetizes the body, the skin, and the limbs, and all these parts of your body. It makes them numb, so you can't feel anything. You can't feel pain. See, pain can be a good thing because pain warns you of danger. But the unique thing about leprosy is as painful as it would look if I showed you a person that had it, they don't physically feel a thing. It's like sin. They end up hurting themselves and they don't even realize the damage they're doing to themselves because they become calloused and hardened to it because this disease that's gotten into them. And what I read about this week is there were some people they would have the, in the middle of the night, they'd have fingers eaten off by rats or toes eaten off by rats. They don't even know it until they wake up. They'll stick their hand right into fire, not realizing they're being burned. People that would cut themselves, they don't even realize they've been cut until they see their own blood on the ground. See, it's not the physical pain that's the problem for these lepers. It's the emotional pain. It's the psychological pain. It's the spiritual pain that takes place in their lives. And so what happens with them is they go to the priest and the priest tells them they're unclean and they're going to go live outside the camp. And now they're separated from their families and they're separated from their work and their friends, not to sleep in their own bed again, not to embrace their spouse, not to see their children. Maybe some of them were young kids when they were diagnosed, and so they don't even know if their parents are still alive. And they've been living with this disease perhaps for months, perhaps for years, maybe decades. Some of these men are out there, and they're crying out to Jesus, have pity on us. 
I was reading this week about how, how intense this emotional shame and guilt is upon them, even though they've done nothing wrong. It's like if you've ever met someone who's been abused or, or raped, and the shame and the guilt they feel, even though it was something someone else did. And William Barclay, in his commentary, talks about what it was like for lepers. He talks about a doctor that actually spent time studying these leper colonies and said the greatest problem for them is the emotional guilt and shame that they feel. Many of them contemplate suicide. It's so bad for them. And the worst part when I read about what they're supposed to do is what you're supposed to do as a leper. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, what you do is you cry out whenever someone comes close to you because you've got to keep your distance. You're warning them. You're supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean. And so you already have this guilt and this shame on you. And can you imagine some of you who know guilt and shame, what it would be like if you had to yell out, and it wasn't even something you did, but you had to yell at your greatest pain? Absent father, absent father. Never measured up. Rape. Abuse. Can you imagine if you had to declare that to people? You'd feel like a leper. But some of you know what that's like. You know what it's like to feel like a leper. Because you know that you've received before those judgmental looks or the condemning stares from people, and you think they know. They know my stuff. And maybe they're really judging you, or maybe you're making that up in your mind. But you know what it's like? Like if, if, if people knew this about me, I'd never measured up. I'm damaged goods. I'm not good enough. That's how these lepers feel. And they stand at a distance, and they yell out to Jesus, take pity on us, because we're pitiful, and we're helpless, and we're needy, and we depend upon you, Jesus. You're our only hope, Jesus. And you see this cry throughout the New Testament. You see it later in Luke chapter 18. When we get to Luke 18, there's a man who's blind. And he hears that Jesus is coming. And he starts to cry out, have mercy on me, son of David. It's the same word. Mercy there is the same word as pity here in this passage in the Greek. It means the same thing. I'm pitiful, Jesus, heal me. Or you go to Matthew chapter 15. You see there's a woman, she's a parent. And her daughter has demon possession. Now parents, can you imagine... Your kids are so dependent upon you. From the time they're a child, they depend on you for everything. Can you imagine? They're so dependent upon you, and you can't help them with their problem. You can't fix it for them. How this mother must have felt, and she comes to Jesus and says, have mercy on, not my daughter, she says, have mercy on me. She needs help, and I can't help her. Will you help me? I'm pitiful. And then in Matthew chapter 18, uh, there's a man that comes. In Matthew chapter 17, there's a man who comes to Jesus and, and his son has thrown himself in the fire and thrown himself in the water. And he says, have mercy on my son. Same word. Have pity on me. Do you know what you see? In this passage and in every passage throughout the New Testament, whenever someone cries out like that, you see every time Jesus sees them. Every time Jesus has compassion on them. And so I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what your heartache is, but I'm going to tell you something he knows. He sees. He is a God of compassion and grace, slow to anger, abounding in love. You see it throughout the scripture in the Old Testament. He is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. Psalm 103 is God, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's why Jonah wouldn't go preach in Nineveh because he knew God would be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. It's what you see throughout the New Testament. When you see Jesus, he comes into contact with these people. It's what you see. He he knows what's going on in your life. He's compassionate, he's gracious, and he cares. And some of you may think to yourself, if he cares, if he knows, why doesn't he fix it? Maybe he doesn't really care. Or maybe he's not really able. Those are honest questions that we ask. Those are questions I've asked before in the midst of pain, of loss of loved one, or difficult medical things that take place, or emotional things that happen in relationships. And 
can you not, can you not fix this? I mean, if you're God and you're a good God, you want what's good for me, why wouldn't you fix this? And what you end up learning is this. He doesn't just wipe away all this pain, but what he does is he redeems it from this broken place and he redeems it for our good and for his glory. That's why we're created, was for his glory. And he works all things together for good for those who love him. So he does it for our good and for his glory. And what you can do is you can trace that through the entire Bible. You look at anybody who had faith in God and what you see is there's pain in their lives and God redeems it for their good and for his glory. You go to the father of our faith, Abraham. You start at the very beginning of the Old Testament. Talk about someone who knew pain. He knows a pain that some of you know very well infertility and what it was to hear the promises of God but then not see them actually working out in your life. Can you imagine the struggle of faith that was for Abraham? So much so that he tries to take things into his own control and he tries to do it on his own. He creates a mess and creates more pain. And then finally to see God answer his promise in his timing and not ours. You know what that did for Abraham? It developed his dependence. Through that pain, what God did is he developed a dependence. He created even more. He revealed to him what was already true and then showed him how to grow in that dependence. And then you go to Joseph, we talked about last week. Remember Joseph, he's the young guy who got sold by his siblings, human trafficking situation. He gets sold to these slave traders, and the slave traders sell him again to a guy in Egypt. The guy in Egypt wants to use him to work in his home, but then his wife has another idea. She wants to use him for sex. And then he ends up in jail for several years. And what you end up seeing is he comes face-to-face with his siblings again, and he's able to say in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 25, what man intended for harm, God intended for good. Why? Because God redeems these things for my good and for his glory. And he does it for the good of all of his people to protect his nation. And he brings his nation to Egypt. But then they end up spending over 400 years in bondage in Egypt. And so you say, why God? Why would you allow this to happen? And what happens here? And then he leads them out and shows them he's a delivering God and has them cross the Red Sea and delivers them. But then because of their sin, they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And so what you see is pain and redemption for our good, for his glory. And then pain and redemption for our good, for his glory. And you continue to trace that through. You don't think that the other characters that we see are heroes of our faith experience pain? Not David. As a man after God's own heart. God says that about you as a parent. Can you imagine that? And then your kids do things that are detestable before God. You don't think that hurt David? And then David has his own sin and causes pain in his life and in the lives of many others. You don't think that hurt? And he knows pain, but he redeems it. And he brings about through that Solomon. He redeems it for our good, for his glory. You trace it all the way through the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament. You see Jesus. Talk about someone who was innocent, who never deserved any pain. And you wonder if he knows your pain. He knows, has compassion on your pain. He's able to sympathize with us because he's been through what we've been through. He knows temptation. You know, the pain of struggle, of sin. Some of you, that's your pain. As you keep going back to the same thing, you need to admit that it's a reality there. And he knows that temptation because he's tempted himself by the devil. He knows the pain of loss. What about his human father, Joseph, who died? Well, he was just a boy, probably. He knows the pain of betrayal. He knows the pain of rejection. He knows the pain of abuse, both verbal and physical abuse. He knows what it is to be mocked. He knows what it is to be lied to. He knows what it is to be lied about. He knows what it is for everyone to desert him. He knows loneliness. He went to the cross. Talk about physical pain. It's by his scars that we're healed. He goes to the cross, beaten, humiliated, stripped naked. Is hung on the cross to die a death, a gruesome death for us, to take upon the wrath of God and be forsaken by his Father. Talk about someone who knows abandonment. To be forsaken by his father? They were one. And he does it for us. So that we could be redeemed. So we could take our pain and lay it at the foot of the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. He is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. But then even after Jesus, what you see is all the pain doesn't go away. 
And you continue to read the New Testament, the most published author in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Talk about a guy who knew pain. He knew what it was to be shipwrecked. He knew what it was to be abandoned. He knew what it was to be mocked. He knew what it was to be rejected. The guy was on the run from bandits, on the run from people that were believers. He knew what it was for all these things to take place in his life. And look at what he's able to say as he gives us a theology of pain in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To even be able to say those words after what he's been through, to be stoned for living out his faith. Really? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. I think comfort's a big deal here. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. Let's get real specific here. We were under great pressure. Some of you have heard the lie that God will not allow you to have more than you can handle. It's not true. This is the Apostle Paul. Far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Paul felt that pressure. I'd be better off dead. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that... In order that, so that, here's the reason. It happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. This happened that our dependence would be revealed to us, our dependence would be increased in us. And the dependence wouldn't be dependence on ourselves, it wouldn't be dependence on other people, it wouldn't be dependence on our country, it wouldn't be a dependence on our resources, that we would depend upon, we would rely upon God. That's what he's developing. And that's what you see him do in this passage of Scripture. You've got these 10 men, they're yelling out to Jesus from a distance, have pity on us. Then look what Jesus says in the passage. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. (laughs) Think about that. He didn't say you're healed. He didn't say you're cured. You go to somebody, ever gone to somebody before? Hey, dad, can I have the keys to the car? Go ask your mom. Hey, boss, can I have a raise? (laughs) Go get another job, you know, whatever it is. It's like he goes to Jesus here, and he's the guy who feeds. He's the guy who heals. He's the guy who can raise the dead. Jesus, have pity on us. Yeah, yeah, go talk to the priest. (laughs) Just kidding. It's probably not how he said it. Jesus is gracious and compassionate. What's he doing here when he says to them, go talk to the priest? See, you only went to the priest for one reason. Once you've been excommunicated, you've only got one reason. It's if you've been healed. Here's the problem. They haven't been healed. He didn't say you're cured. He didn't say you're healed. They're standing there. They still have lion face and they still got limbs missing. And they're looking at each other like this is our only hope. And now he's telling us to go to the priest. That's the guy who rejected us. And what Jesus is saying to them is this. If you trust me, I want you to take a step of faith. I want you to actually do something with your dependence. I want you to turn. I want you to take a step of faith and go to the priest as if you're healed. It's like he says to Abraham, I want you to go to a land without knowing where you're going. It's like when he says to Noah, I want you to build a boat, but there's no rain. What do you mean? And Peter stands at the edge of the boat. I want you to take a step out of the boat. That's what he says to some of us. And some of you, you have a step of faith that God wants you to take. And maybe it's through your pain. And maybe you're in your pain and somebody's wronged you. 
and God's asking you to forgive like we talked about last week. Did you apply last week's message? Have you forgiven, written that letter, made that phone call? That might be your step of faith. Or maybe he wants you to reconcile a relationship and all he wants from you is willingness. That's your step of faith. That's your turning and going to the priest. Are, are you willing? Or maybe he's asking you to step out of faith, by faith and do something and you don't know how God's going to provide for that, but he's the one who's told you to do it. So do you, you trust that he'll actually provide? Will you take the step of faith? Or there's some words you're supposed to say, or there's some place you're supposed to go, there's a phone call you're supposed to do. Or maybe he wants you to take a step of faith and it has to do with your sin and you've been living in denial and you deny that the shame's there, you deny that the guilt's there, and you won't face up to what happened, maybe in your past or maybe currently. And he wants you to take that step of faith to turn to him and actually trust him. And that's what he says to the men in this passage. He says, I want you to trust me. And then that's an action word. It's not just come to me and cry out for pity. I want you to take a step of faith. And for some of us, that's what he's saying to us. Take a step of faith. And he says it to these men. And you know what we see is this pain has driven them to this place where their dependence is revealed. They've got no hope but Jesus. But there's a beautiful thing about dependence is dependence can, it has the potential to lead us to wholeness. And that's the journey that Jesus is trying to send these men on. See, pain, what he might be doing with us, pain leads us to see dependence. It reveals it to us. It uncovers it to us. But then our second point is that dependence can lead us to wholeness. So you read the scriptures, what you find out in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, is that God's purpose eternity in each one of our hearts. See, we're all created the same. Male and female, we're created in the image of God. And we're supposed to be glorifying God with our lives. Isaiah chapter 43 talks about we're created for his glory. The Westminster Confession, the chief end of man is to glorify God. That's why we're here. But you also read that there's a hole in our hearts. In Ecclesiastes, there's something that's missing. There's something that we all long for, that we all desire, and it's an eternal desire. He's purposed eternity in each one of our hearts. And the problem is that what many of us do is we try to fulfill that eternal longing, that eternal desire with temporary things, with things that have been created, with other people, with, with food, with sex, with drugs, with reputation, with position, and we try to fill it with our own glory. And it might feel good for a little while, but it goes away, and eventually you feel even further from what you're longing for, and you don't even know what you're longing for. It's for this eternal wholeness, to fill that hole that's in your heart. And he knows that's the reality for these men, and they've got this painful situation where they're crying out to Jesus, and Jesus says, go to the priest and look at the next part of that verse. And as they went, they were cleansed. What did that look like? And so you've got 10 guys here, and they're crying out to Jesus. Jesus says, go to the priest. And so then they turn, and you can't tell, not even from Greek, not even from grammar or anything, if it happened immediately or if it happened progressively. We don't know if it was one guy got healed and then the second guy got healed until all 10 guys were healed. If it was simultaneous, they were all just healed. I believe because it was as they went, presently, as they were going, that it was probably progressive. And I'd like to believe that it was probably one at a time. And can you imagine what that would be like if you were one of those guys and maybe you only know each other as lepers. And maybe you've only seen your friend with a lion face where you can't even see his eyes. And then before your eyes, you watch God do what God does. God recreates. He's going to recreate a new heaven, a new earth. When old things pass away in our lives, he makes all things new. We become a new creation. And so he, they watch this physically take place with a human being who you've never seen a human-looking face on. And all of a sudden, he has a nose, and you can see his brown eyes. Can you imagine that? Oh, the little boy that broke his leg, but he didn't even realize he broke his leg, so he just learned how to walk with a limp because he can't feel any pain. He's a leper. And all of a sudden, he can walk normal. Or you, yourself, you don't have a hand, and the next thing you know, you see that you have a hand. Can you imagine how they felt? I would imagine if I looked in the face of my friend and that was happening, and then I started to realize it was happening for me, I would just be overwhelmed with emotion. 
And then it dawns on them. This means I can go back to my family. This means I'm going to get to hold my kids again. This means I get to sleep in my bed. This means I get to know the embrace of my spouse. This means I can go back to my job. I'm clean. I'm restored. I'm renewed. I'm literally, physically a new creation. Can you imagine how they felt? That means 10 people were restored to their family. That means 10 people had new life. That means 10 people got a second chance. That means 10 people got to go back to their community. But then look at verse 14 or 15. One of them, so there were 10. And sometimes you hear this passage preached like there was only one guy that was actually grateful. I don't think that's true. How could you not be grateful? They had to be so overwhelmed with the change of circumstances that they experienced. But only one decided to go back to Jesus. One of them. When he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. That word for praising there is he's glorifying God. He's doing the very thing he was created to do. There's only one that goes back to the source. He goes back to God and he's praising him in a loud voice. And then verse 16, he threw himself at Jesus' feet, a sign of submission, and he thanked him. And he was the most unlikely candidate. He was a Samaritan hated by Jews, a half-breed. They didn't even have the Bible. They didn't worship according to the truth. They didn't do all the right things. If there was anybody that was condemned, it was a Samaritan, racially outcast, and he's a leper. He's doubly cursed in their day. And he's the one? He's the one that comes back? This would be scandalous to the listener. This would be scandalous to anyone that was there that saw this happen. He's the guy that shows back up? This guy, he's not even allowed to go into the temple. He's got a spot where it keeps him from going too far into the temple. It's like if we made him stay out in the lobby at church. And there was a sign to say, if you're this, you can't come past here. And this guy's at the feet of Jesus doing the very thing he was created to do. And see, the other guys, they fell into a trap that's so easy to fall into. I'm sure they were excited. If you didn't have a face and then you had a face, how could you not be excited? If you couldn't see your kids and you get to see your kids, how could you not be excited? The problem was for these guys is they worshiped the gift. Only one guy worshiped the giver of the gift. Incredibly dangerous and very easy to do. In fact, I bet there are people all across America today in evangelical churches, and that's exactly what they do. And they might love the truth. They might love what God can do. And I'll tell you something. It's very dangerous. You can take biblical principles, apply them to your family, and have a better family. Who doesn't want a better family? You can take biblical principles, apply them to your finances. You will have better finances. Who doesn't want better finances? You can apply them to your life. Just general life principles that you'll hear in messages at this church and other churches all throughout the, all, all around the country. And you'll have a better life. Who doesn't want that? And if somebody says to you, do you want heaven or do you want hell? Who picks the alternative? Of course you're going to pick this one. And so what we do as consumers is we take what we like, we leave what we don't. We don't even believe in the stuff that we don't want. And so we just pick what we want, we leave what we don't want. And what we oftentimes end up doing is we worship the gift rather than the giver. It's called idolatry. We exchange the glory of God for a lie. And we have better families, and we worship that. We worship that we have a better family. That's an idol. Or we worship our finances, or we worship the better life, or we worship the ease that we have because we got rid of the pain because we're making wise, proverbially wise decisions in our life. And we've got better relationships all around, and we've got all these things, and we worship the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all meaningless. He had everything. He denied himself nothing. He said, if you miss God, it's all vanity. And that's where many of us live. In fact, surveys would say, according to this passage, nine out of ten people that receive the grace of God will worship the gift and not the giver. Nine out of ten guys, they're gone. And Jesus wants to point this out to his audience. He's going to ask three rhetorical questions in verse 17. It's not that Jesus doesn't know the answer to these questions, okay? 
And Jesus asks, we're not all ten cleansed? He's not puzzled here, though. It's not, you know, he didn't throw some pixie dust. Hey, did it not land on those guys? This is the power of God here. He knows all ten were cleansed. Where are the other nine? This is Jesus who's able to pick out a disciple sitting underneath a fig tree who hasn't even seen before, okay? He knows where they're at. They're probably at the temple, and maybe it's because they were like rule Nazis and they had to go by the letter of the law and make sure they go to the temple, and this guy's just overwhelmed by the grace of God and throws some feet at the Holy of Holies and stands in the presence of Jesus. And then Jesus says, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, this person that you would racially reject, except for this guy? And then he says just to this one guy, see, 10 guys experienced physical healing. Let me be very clear about that. Jesus didn't undo their healing because they didn't come back. Their circumstances were changed. Their circumstances were better. But he says to this one man, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting here. Your faith has made you well. It almost seems like a double physical healing, but that's not what it is. The Greek word that's actually used here is the word sozo. Oftentimes in the New Testament, you'll see this word used that your faith has saved you. It's the word saved. It's talking about not just physical healing, it's talking about the, that hole in your soul, that hole in your heart, it's been filled, you've been made whole. In fact, that's what the King James says. The King James says, and he said unto him, arise, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. See, this dependence can lead to wholeness. When we come to Jesus and realize what he's truly done for us, it's not just about fixing our circumstances, that we can have God, the God who created us, the God who wants to glorify himself through us. He uses these things for our good and for his glory and the ultimate good and the ultimate glory is that we would be made whole in his presence, but we've got to have God. What many of us want is we just want our circumstances fixed. And it's an easy trap to fall in, but he can make you whole. He's done it with people in our church. Like my friend Michelle. Michelle's a young lady who attends our church and uh, started attending back in 2008, but if you hear her tell her story, there's a lot of pain. Parents were divorced when she was 10 years old, and many of us have experienced divorced parents. And when her parents were divorced, she longed for their attention. She longed for their affection, but didn't feel like she was receiving it. And so she said she started to go to other places for attention, for affection, seeking out love. She went to boys, and many of you know how that goes. And she went to food, and she went to sex, and she went to drugs, and she went to alcohol. And all those things left her feeling more and more empty. It was good at the time, but then afterwards, and that wears off, it kind of a more of a downward spiral. Not only did she make bad decisions, but then there were things that were done to her. Twice she was raped. And some of you know that pain. And you can take on that guilt and that shame, even though you didn't do anything. You take on that guilt and you take on that shame. And if you ask her, she'd say, I felt like damaged goods. Continually trying to pursue love, continually trying to be loved, but it was like she'd get it for a little bit and then it would fade and then it was a downward spiral where she was worse off than she was before. And she'd go shopping and she'd go for drugs and she'd go for alcohol and she'd go for sex and all these different things and it never worked. And then she felt like no one could possibly love her because of the things that had happened to her and the things that she had done and the pain was there and the guilt was there and the shame was there. And some of you know what that's like and you know what it's like to live like a leper where inside you feel like if they really knew me, then of course they wouldn't love me. And so then they only get what you present. And she talks about that dilemma where she only presents herself in a certain way and then even if people do love you, you think they're loving the fake me. And so there's this, this thing that happens. And what she decided she needed to do, she needed to change her circumstances. And so she moved to North Carolina. And she came here, got a new job, and you know, mostly new friends, and all that kind of stuff, a new environment. And she still felt broken inside. She saw some signs for a church that meets at a movie theater, and she decided to come here, and she heard the story about Jesus Christ and how Jesus loves her. And after a few months, placed her faith in Jesus Christ. It was in 2008. 
but she'll tell you if you talk to her about her story, there was still a lot of lies and there was still a lot of baggage. And it didn't matter how many times she heard me say the words, you're forgiven. As far as the East is from the West, it doesn't matter what you've done. God wants to, you can't out-sin his forgiveness. He wants to forgive you. It wasn't until she got still with God on her own, spent about a year in Bible study and being discipled by other women, that it became reality for her. And then she realized what actually happened at the cross does make her whole. And when she came to Jesus in 2008, she was made whole, but it became a living reality for her when she embraced that wholeness, when she embraced what was reality for her. See, God can make you whole too. And oftentimes that's what he uses pain to do is take us on this journey, this pathway to wholeness. It's what happened for one man in this text. Not all ten, just one. Because he comes back to the giver. He comes back to the source because he realizes his dependency. Pain reveals our dependence, but it can also create dependence. And dependence can lead us to the pathway of wholeness. Has it for you? I know many of us here today have experienced different pain. Some of you are going through pain right now. And we're told that we're to live in community with one another as believers. And we believe this is a community of grace and a community of love that we live in. And we're to carry one another's burdens. And so what I want us to do as we wrap up today is that if you have a burden, if you have something that's heavy on your heart, we want to take that to Jesus. He says that he cares for us. We cast our cares upon him. He says to come to him because his burden is light. His yoke is easy. He wants to take the weight from you and give you rest for your soul. And so what we want to do is we want to carry that burden with you. And so what I'm going to ask you to do if you have pain, maybe it's some pain that someone else has caused, maybe it's relational strife, maybe you're unemployed, maybe it's physical pain, perhaps it's cancer, I don't know. Will you just stand in your seat, and we're going to pray for you. And I just ask, if you see someone stand around you in the next couple moments in Theater 9 or in Theater 14, would you just pray for that person? And we don't need to know exactly what it is that you're struggling with. We don't need to know what your pain is. I'm not going to ask you to come down here. God knows. He knows our thoughts before we think them, so he certainly knows what you're going through. And he knows why you're standing. If you want to lay a burden down today, I just ask you to stand even right now. If you want us to pray for you and pray for whatever's going on. So you can stand, begin to stand in Theater 9. You can just stand here in Theater 14. I'll just give you a moment. You can stand right where you're seated. Like I said, I'm not going to ask you to come down here. And if you just take notice when you see people standing, see people standing at different spots in the auditorium right now, I'm sure probably in Theater 9 as well. If you see someone stand, if you just look over at them, if you're in community with them, maybe you even know what that is and you might want to pray for them specifically. If you don't know them, I just pray that you'd pray generally, that God knows. He knows exactly what's happening. So people that are standing in Theater 9 will pray for you. So just pick someone that's near you. If you see someone stand, let me pray. Father God, we come before you. And we're so grateful that, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that you know things that we could never comprehend. We trust that your judgments are perfect. I come before you with my friends here that have heavy burdens. In Theater 9, here in Theater 14, those that are standing towards the front, towards the back, and the left and the right, God, we come before you with each one of these needs. And we lay them down at your feet. You promise you care for them. You are gracious and compassionate. Will you look upon them? Will you allow them to feel and sense your compassion today? Will you wrap your arms around them? Will you speak truth to them? For those of us who need to take a step of faith, will you speak by the power of your Spirit into our hearts? We show us what step of faith we need to take. If there are any here that need to trust your son Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that right now they would call upon your son Jesus, acknowledging their sin and receiving his forgiveness. And Father, I pray, I pray for each one of us that have trusted your son Jesus. And maybe like Michelle, we just haven't totally embraced what it is to be whole. I pray you'd show us what wholeness means and what it feels like in our hearts and what it seems like and lives like in our practical reality, not just positionally to be made whole, but practically to know what it is to walk in your freedom and your forgiveness and your wholeness. God, we thank you so much for the, the gifts you've given us. 
other people? Will you use other people to speak words into our lives? God, will you use your word to speak into our lives? God, will you use your spirit to, to speak into our hearts, our souls? God, we come to you and we give you our heavy stuff. We give you broken relationships. We give you heavy burdens. We give you sin. We hand it off to you at the cross, God, and we want rest for our souls. Will you please give us that? We claim that promise, God. Guard our hearts. Guard our minds in your son, Jesus Christ. Give us peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.